So this episode was recorded a little while back during a much colder time of year. Um, so please excuse that we're both a bit sniffly and a bit of coughs here and there, but we're human, you know. Um, so Naveena kindly agreed to come on the show to talk about the kind of work that she does and topics that are important to both of us. So in this episode, we look at holistic healing and the various paths to well-being. We look at how the mind, body and spirit can be brought into therapy. And we consider questions such as, can you have Jesus and therapy? We discuss generational wellness and how our parents and caregivers can model well-being and influence our perspective on what well-being means for us. So this episode is for you if you're considering therapeutic counselling, therapeutic coaching, or perhaps wondering, will this conflict with my current faith or religious beliefs? I hope you enjoy listening to this episode. Hey there, you're listening to Vivify Conversations, a podcast promoting holistic and inclusive well-being. I'm your host, Priscilla Vivian. Join me as I speak with guests from all over the world exploring mental health, wellness, and self-cultivation. Follow Vivify Conversations on Instagram and check the Vivify Conversations hashtag for new episodes and all updates. Thank you so much for listening. today is mainly about mental health and wellness but I know Mm -hmm. you do so many things under that umbrella so can you talk a bit about your your titles your roles and what it is that you do okay sure so yes I am a counselor psychotherapist I'm also a life coach work more equilibrium more about balance in life I'm a nutritional advisor I am plant-based eater I don't just deal plant-based people but my main client base is plant-based I'm also a Reiki master, so I initiate other Reiki healers and run workshops. I don't do as much healing as I used to, but I do it for myself and close friends and family. What else is there? And I'm a yoga instructor. Wow. So you are really doing a lot. Superwoman. Yeah. And, and I didn't mention she's a, a mama too, just like myself. So yeah, you're really like doing everything. I guess that leads me on to my next question. When you say equilibrium, what does balance mean to you and what inspired you to focus on balance? Yeah. So equilibrium, as we know, that does mean balance. Yeah. And balance for me is in the main areas of our life, just ensuring that nothing outweighs the other too much so as you see I do a lot of things work-wise yeah so that is my professional kind of avenue of life but I also have life as a mum mm-hmm. so I want to make sure that there's balance within that life as a, as a partner life yeah. as a mentor life as so it's just looking at the different areas of my life financial health-wise well-being just ensuring that in all those quadrants I have a very it's not always going to be the same amount I think it's unrealistic I can never put into I don't know being a therapist what I put into being a mum it's a little bit of a different motivation it's a different requirement of myself but it does mean that I am trying to ensure that there's balance and happiness in all those different areas of my life and wow. that's something I'm very passionate about so that's why when I say equilibrium that's what I mean by equilibrium what I love about what I see on your social media is that you seem very self-assured and balanced in the way that you've just described. How did you come to be in that place of balance for yourself and to understand balance in the way that you do? 
Uh, well, firstly, thank you. <laughs> I think I've always been like this. My, I grew up with my mum, who's a social worker, who was a social worker, and later on in my teens became a therapist herself. So I grew up a lot around just crystals and crystal healing. And well, I think at that stage, back then in the 80s, self-care was maybe seen a little bit different. But there was an element of taking care of yourself. And my mum's powerful, confident woman. I come from a line of very confident women who are kind of about their stuff. So I've always been, as a child, maybe a bit rebellious, but quite confident in myself. So it's always, it's always been there, I would say. You've got the whole genetics and, and our kind of the things we pass on. So I think that's something that's just been passed down through the line, really. So your mum sounds very confident and you say you come from a line of confident women. So something that's definitely been passed down to you. Talk a bit about your cultural heritage and where you're from, because I'm wondering how that ties in as well in terms of confidence. Yeah. Well, uh, my parents are both born here and I was born here, but my mother is um, of Sierra Leone and Nigerian heritage. Okay. And my dad of Jamaican heritage. Very strong um, cultural background would you say that impacted the way your mum sort of carried herself with that confidence and also your own confidence well that's interesting you answer because yes I do when I talk to parents about like bringing up children as a mum one thing I say to my mum I mean my parents were not perfect they were the best they could with what they knew and they had me at 18 they were young but what my mum did instill in me is a, a very strong foundation and knowledge of African history and it's been unshakable. So they, that's where I think a lot actually sets my confidence, I think, does come from. That I was brought up understanding, before slavery, brought up understanding just that I'm from scientists and just amazing, like, astrologists. And so that, I would say, came in from there. My mum was very, very much about black culture and our history and just being very proud of where we came from. So it's like, even though it's come from your mum and other women in your family, it actually goes a lot deeper. And it sounds like knowing your, your culture has really helped to ground you and bring forward some of those really strong qualities that you have as well. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Amazing. So apart from your mum and your relatives, was there anyone else outside of your family who inspired you to um, embark on a wellness career? People know a bit more about my background. As a teenager, I ran away a lot when I was homeless when I was about 15. Mm. And I remember getting in contact with Childline and then Centerpoint. Right. And there was a lady who was a, she was not a social worker. What was Angie? She was, I think she probably would be described as like a child support worker. I remember her. She was amazing. But I just remember being a tiny 15, because I'm really tiny, a tiny 15-year-old sat in a hostel and her coming in through the door there was this white lady with grey hair massive grey curls and she just she must have been around me for no more than a month or so but just in that small fragment of time she just made such a big difference she believed everything I said she never questioned me she showed me just unconditional love and support and she made me feel safe and as a 15 year old who's on the street an adult who makes you feel safe and believes and important was just life-changing. So I think she was a person outside of my family that had a big influence in me going into well-being, but more so that helping profession. Because that's why I started off just doing youth work, uh, not just doing, doing youth work and working with young people. And that led me towards counselling. 
sounds like she had a really big impact on your life and I think Thank it's just you. amazing when we meet people like that isn't it and I, I think the fact that you've gone and taken that on as a career says a lot about how big the impact was that she had on, on your life yeah. um, I'm wondering if you could say a bit more about your social environment and how that interlinks with your cultural background and what led you to being like quite a rebellious teen um, like I say my parents had me very young I don't potentially, I don't miss, some people think when someone's young, they're destined to not be a great parent. And I don't believe that at all. I've met 17 year olds who I literally said, I wish you was one of my parents. You're amazing as a parent. Mm -hmm. But mine, their background wasn't the best. So they didn't come into parenting with the tools that maybe were needed to deal with a young child who was probably very similar to them. My parents are both outspoken, strong characters, amazing. So I grew up in a home with my mum, with input from my dad and my grandma. But yeah, mainly with my mum. So our environment, my mum did the best. She keeps saying best she did. She did. <laughs> so I got lots of the material things. I was always turned out amazingly and things like that. But sometimes the emotional needs wasn't met. So I learned to be quite rebellious and say what I wanted to say and look for attention that way. So... Yes, I used to run away from home, uh, stay out quite late sometimes. I didn't hang out with a bad crowd, actually. I was quite lucky in that the people that did come around were, were, good, were good, or they were a bit of a bad example. They wouldn't stay around me for long again because I was quite outspoken and I had been brought up with a kind of a good awareness of myself. I wouldn't follow them to do things that weren't okay. So I wasn't really that cool for them, I guess. So that was kind of my social environment. I grew up in an estate in Brixton, Mitesfield, which has now been completely gentrified and doesn't look like Mitesfield anymore. That was very much my upbringing. Yeah, that's a really interesting story. And I'm hearing in that that you still had a lot of the qualities that you had now, but maybe just a younger version of yourself and really quite headstrong, even in yeah. a circumstance that wasn't very ideal. You still kind of managed to say, you know, these are sort of my boundaries. In a, in a yeah, sense. people I know from the area, like they kind of had the links with each other and would go off and do things. I was allowed out, but my mum was very, again, she was quite good in that she knew who my friends were. Mm. So if I was out and she didn't know who I was with, there was a problem. She would be able to call someone's mum or dad and say, is she? So I think that was very good in that there was a, there was a protection in mm. that. I mm. didn't go off and get lost. Nothing, especially I ran away a lot, nothing bad ever happened to me whilst I ran away or whilst I was out in the streets there was just a protectiveness around me and who was around and who I knew or what the safety so I was quite lucky in that kind of a lot of people weren't I was just going to say that it sounds like you were very protected and some some sort of entity or energy was watching over you for you to be safe in yeah, all of that yeah definitely, definitely. definitely. Yeah, I don't doubt that for a moment just as you were explaining, I was just thinking, oftentimes, I think people can go straight to the negative about growing up in that kind of area or environment or running away from home. But mm. for me personally, I think there's still life lessons that can be taken from that. So would you say there is one life lesson that you felt you took from that period of time in your teens? 100% to always follow my instincts. I wrote a post probably a couple of years ago on my Instagram and I was explaining, um, again, I used to run away. I remember once I was about 12 or, yeah, 12, 12 13. I ran away from my grandma's house. 
and um, I was walking through Gypsy Hill in Crystal Palace where she used to live and there was a lady and her son and he was about 12 I remember he was smoking uh, with his mum walking and I told him I'd run I told him I told him my grandma was out and I couldn't get into the house so they let me sleep at their house which very strange little tiny 12 year old they've taken into their house but there was something about him where I felt safe but mm. I did see there was something about this little boy smoking Again, it's that boundary thing. I grew up in a household where mum didn't smoke, mum didn't drink. It was just a bit of a, why is he allowed to smoke? So it doesn't feel right here. And I remember the father came back. And I, I remember writing it saying, he smiled at me. When I was thinking about his smile. It wasn't, uh, how do I explain it? Something about his smile raised the alarm to me. Someone can smile at you, then someone can smile at you. There's a difference in a mm. smile. And I remember at 12, looking at him and thinking, that smile isn't safe. So I remember I was allowed to sleep in the sister's room who wasn't home. But I remember, I don't know what time it was, but I remember it must have been daylight. I woke up and climbed out the window and ran away. And I just knew that, I mean, there's no fact. I'm not going to name the name because there's no fact in it. But my instinct was that he is not safe. And I never had like been abused by an elderly man or there was nothing there. There was just something that said to me, this man isn't safe. And it was just my instinct. Something wasn't safe about him. And I, 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 again, I can't prove anything, but I just knew it in myself. And that's, that's something I've always said. When you have that life you grow up in, and I said, I do think it was a divine protection, then there was something there. But it was also that I knew it to get out of situations before they got too bad. Like I've had friends who have had horrible things happen and we've been hanging around, but I've left early. I didn't like the group of people that came in or something felt weird about the energy in the room. So there is something that I feel you learn. You learn the street wiseness and you learn to really be in connected with yourself. When something doesn't feel right or someone's behaviour towards you changes slightly, you learn to believe it. Well, that sounds like a really powerful moment. And that kind of leads me on to the next topic. Um, I saw that you did an interview about childhood sexual abuse and that's one of sort of your, your passion areas within therapy. Could you tell me a bit about how you got into that area of work and what you what sort of your key learnings in that area have been so far okay so oh well like I said I grew up doing youth work so that was kind of my thing that was the first time I went into mentoring and youth work for my own organization and one of the things I heard just if most people I met young people is that there was, there was abuse whether it was sexual abuse mental emotional it came to be a common theme in their behaviors so when I started training to be a therapist my very first placement was um, women and girls network and they specialize in childhood sexual abuse trafficking um, and rape so that was like my first brunt of training and then after that I went to go work for rape crisis and it's just by chance that those placements came up I was lucky enough to get the placements they were quite hard for someone who's training to be a therapist but again lucky <laughs> they, they took me on and it just became very important to me to understand the, the knock-on effects because somebody who hasn't dealt with those wounds who goes on to be a parent sometimes we think someone would be maybe more alert to it but in a way sometimes it can dull our, our responses to it and then that's how the cycle continues with a lot of my clients we do systemic therapy we look at the family actual system and a lot of them you see that the grandmother was abused the mother was abused the daughter was abused it just goes through the cycles and families so it's an area I'm very passionate about obviously wanting to end that cycle to alert people to it, have an awareness of it. It's because it's something that just shouldn't be continuing. 
so yeah that's why okay that is really powerful I mean your journey into that and being able to get those placements I know how difficult it is at the beginning of your training um almost seems like you were in alignment and I think sometimes for me in my training I found that the the work that we need to do is almost like the placements find us as well (laughs) at the beginning of our training so a kind of match with the clients that we need to work with and when you talked about cycles I was thinking about the difference in the way Europeans deal with, you know, surviving childhood sexual abuse and the way that Africans and Caribbeans deal with it. Have you found any key differences between those two groups? <laughs> I think, this is generalisation, but there is research that shows it as well. There is a little bit of a, first of all, there's ignorance in it. Mm-hmm. It's a white thing. It's a European thing. Then there is, uh, you said you saw the interview, you saw that I was talking a little bit about in Jamaica and that sometimes it's a known thing in the family. There's an uncle who they know is a bit offish and it's almost on the child to protect themselves. Well, you know that uncle's a bit funny, so you shouldn't have been going there with him. Or it's about financially this person helps our family. I have met 20-year-olds who are still being abused and it started off from like four and that's not in therapy, that's actually just out in groups away from therapy. Wow. But um, it's because it's in the family, it's in the family where this person helps the family, they bring food, they charge electric keys. They, so it is, I think it's a lot more of a hush thing. It's a shame thing. And if you think about just the, the psychology between us as Africans and Caribbeans, a lot of the generation before us and our generation before that, they came here to our survival. They came here to work and survive. Children were in foster care. They were, they were with other centers, family members in the community. They couldn't afford to stop and really listen to a child who was, who was being abused because that would instantly undo the whole family network. We can't leave you here. We can't, we can't, we struggle. So we had that, that, that stiff upper lip. We had that survival. We get on with it. I think I see that a lot in our community. It's kind of known, but it's hushed upon. The, the, the person who's been abused is isolated or looked upon as, a, again, why do you not protect yourself? So, yeah, it's, it's a very hush, shame thing. Whereas I'd say with um, European communities and Western communities, it is a bit more, it's more accepted that if you speak out, and it's not for all. I've worked with people who are Western um, and they've had parents who, have, again, they colluded it. But in general, what I've seen is that when they do speak up, they're believed. Whereas I think with the culture I've, I've seen with us, some of us, is that you're not believed, but again, it's the blame and the shame. It's quite shocking, yeah, when you say that and you kind of really think about, you know, the shame and the stigma and the circumstances that have led to African and Caribbean diasporas even being here in the UK and how that yeah. impacts on their ability um, to be able to support someone, you know, and the impacts, like you said, can be financial. If they yeah. do take on what that person is saying, what is the impact on their family? And it's just a lot of things that I think we forget and like wouldn't even think of. Do you yeah. know what I mean? And just in terms of how difficult it would be for, you know, someone who is African or Caribbean and is going through abuse to even open up, it just it connects to a range of issues and it's so broad and definitely I can agree that um, some of the things you've observed, I've observed as well. And, and I think again, that's why I'm happy to see people like yourself in helping professions because, you know, it's not always the case that 
someone who is African or Caribbean wants a black therapist, but I think yeah. it's helpful that they, we are there as an option as well. So yeah, I mean, thanks for the work that you're doing in that area because it's so needed. Thank you. So also <laughs> just to rewind a little bit back to you speaking about the work that you do, balance. So within that, you talked about a sort of holistic approach of mind, body and soul. I know previously it was quite rare to see um, therapists working in all of those areas. I I felt that um, most of these areas are quite fragmented, but now you're starting to see, you know, more people kind of therapists who are now um, diving into body and soul and also people who do body work are now considering the mind and the soul. Why, why for you would you say it's important um, to look at all three areas? because they're all connected and I think there's there was a real naivety or fear about understanding because you can't explain I mean we can explain the connection in science now we know that when we get angry we release cortisol adrenaline and that affects the body we know that you know when we're thinking negatively certain neural nets in our mind get connected we can understand it that way but to really push it through and to understand the spiritual element I mentioned a little bit about cycles that's called epigenetics uh, I was explaining to somebody just recently that I'm, I'm, I'm pregnant right now and it, it's a girl. And I was talking about the, my being pregnant now, there's so much of a need for peace around me because I'm very much aware that as a mother, the daughter I am carrying now, her womb is already formed and the eggs that are going to create my grandchildren are already inside her. So when I'm getting stressed out and the cortisol and adrenaline's rushing, it's going to impact her and her behaviour and her, what she's predisposed to, as well as my grandchildren. Those things can be predisposed to depression, to anxiety, to all types of things. But for us to start to understand, we're working with a client, well, actually, what did your grandmother suffer with? How was her pregnancy with your mum? What was her pregnancy like with you? To start to explain that, I think people don't understand, they get a bit worried about that, because you can't write it down, you can't just draw it on the board, well, you can draw it on the board, but it's going into an element of spirituality because, I mean, that's quoted in the Bible, three generations. So there's a lot of things I think people see a bit of mysticism and if they don't understand it, they shy away from it. To me, I know that if I eat very, very, I'm plant-based, if I eat junk for a week, my mood lowers. I know that as a woman, if I'm due on my cycle, there's certain times in my cycle where I'm really proactive and I'm ready to take on the world when the progesterone is going and the, the testosterone is pumping in my body I could take on the world then it's sort of when the estrogen drops so things drop in my body my mood changes those things are all linked to behavior if I'm feeling low I'm probably going to be more predisposed to feeling down if I'm feeling more down and the people around me aren't positive then I'm eating crap I'm going to therefore have a knock on effect so it is just really being aware of that all of it is linked. We're not just one thing. We're connected to so much things around us. I've been writing this for hours. Let me not bore you. <laughs> no, I'm just like <laughs> locked into what you're saying. I think my ears really pricked up when you talked about epigenetics. Um, and that's yeah. an area that I've been passionate about for a while too. And just yeah. being mindful of, like you say, when you're pregnant and knowing that, you know, the child that you're carrying is already, they're going to be impacted and also their child and, yeah. you know, generations and those cycles. And it's just so powerful when you look at it in that way and mm. how everything is interlinked and equally, like you said, mind, body and soul are interlinked. And I think coming from 
uh, a counseling or therapy background it can be very mind focused and I think sometimes people are scared or put off when you mention words like soul I find particularly with people who are maybe from Africa or the African diaspora if you mention words like soul and it's not tied to a specific religion it can be what do you mean by that <laughs> you know yeah. it's like there becomes this real need um, to clarify and use terms that that person can relate to so I would ask them for you is it is that something that you do if you're working from a soul perspective with someone who is very religious um would you mm-hmm. use the language that they use to refer to to god or their own spiritual <laughs> beliefs or how would you work with that yeah i think that's part of being a conscious therapist in that i can't push force onto you my beliefs so i mean anyone who comes to work with a therapist they generally should do some read up on the therapist they're going to work with to get an idea of what that person's philosophy is so everyone knows i don't have a i mentioned like it's in the bible but I grew up following Joe Witness. Uh, my first name is Catholic. I very much believe it's, I feel it's truth in every religion. So how I work is that there's one God. Uh, you call God your name. I call God my name. It's the same God we're praying to. So we talk about the soul and the spirit, two different things. How do you understand the spirit? What, what does that mean to you? This is how I understand it. How do we work to kind of work to understand it together and how it works for you? So I do work around a person's knowledge so they can get it. So I've had clients that have bought in their books. So a client or someone who bought in the, the Bible. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay, well, let's look for something in the Bible but what works with what they're talking about. So he talks about, what was it? I was like, oh, God, there was something in the Bible, scripture the person bought. And they was kind of meditating on it a lot and talking about, you know, yoga not being probably the best thing and meditation and so I was saying about what meditation means and what prayer means and you know it's talking to God and it's talking to yourself and so I do believe you use the language of the client and you help them if that's if that religion brings them peace so you don't take them away from it you bring them deeper into it but you teach them about their taking ownership of their self in that religion but I think sometimes with religion it takes away the, the me and the ownership and it puts it onto an outside entity. Mm. Um, so we've got people who don't want to, don't believe in therapy because they go to their pastor. Whereas I believe you can have both. You can have your pastor, you can have Jesus, and you can have God and, and therapy. You know what I mean? I believe you can have all of that. So I work with them to understand, okay, yes, this, this is your piece. This is where you've been brought up in it. I get it. But also, where are you with all of this? You know, you're praying to God to help you. But what are you doing to help God to help you? You know, are you doing the, the homework I've given you? Are you doing the exercises? Are you doing the... So that's kind of how I work. I think that's a really, really good point that you made <laughs> about looking at, yes, you've got your spirituality, whichever religion that might be in, you have your spiritual books, but that can also be complemented by therapy and, you know, going deeper into that person's spiritual beliefs rather than taking it away. Um, yeah. And I think that's really important because, you know, if it's something that is closely tied to their well-being, then I guess supporting them to kind of just develop a, a more healthy relationship with whatever that belief is, is definitely going to help to improve. And not making them scared. Because I think when they hear you're not a Christian counsellor or you're not from Islam, mm-hmm. one of their fears might be you're going to take them away from it or you don't believe what their, their, their belief system is. So just being clear in that this, my thing is, as long as it brings you peace then it's good for you. <laughs> you know, yes. that's, that's it. I might not agree with some of the things. Obviously, I said I'm outspoken. I have very strong views, very much a womanist. 
I think a lot of religions are very patriarchal. <laughs> but if that brings you some kind of some kind of peace within yourself, so you, you have something you can instantly turn to externally to bring it to you, and you're bringing in the internal. I will not try to deter you from that. That's that's good. I've talked like sometimes. Well, you haven't been to church for a while. Maybe you're not feeling peaceful. Should we look at me going back to church? Should we look at you praying more? You know, so yeah, definitely. I love that. Whatever brings you peace, that's what's good for you, you know. And that leads me on to what you said earlier about clients also having the responsibility of um, looking into the type of therapist that they want to work with. So I know you do psychotherapy but also coaching as well so which kind of clients come to you for therapy and which clients come to you for coaching so the difference with therapy and coaching so you know with therapy I work psychodynamically so I work looking a bit about childhood and how that affects you as an adult I do inner child work so with the clients that come to therapy they're usually wanting to deal on a much deeper level with some of the things that are going on they want to spend time being listened to. They want to spend time, maybe doing a bit more long-term work on emotional things. The people who come for coaching usually like the directional approach. They don't mind us, like I do more therapeutic coaching. So we'll touch upon, well, this is a block. At least I know it's a psychological block. What's going on here? Because the tools are available to you, you're not doing it. But we're not going to go very, very deep into, again, the, the the trauma that's probably present i'll send them to a therapist for that so the coach would be what is your goal what is you want to get out of coaching what is our time scale every we're doing complete completely doing reviews and i am a bit more vocal on my opinions whereas if counseling your, your counselor shouldn't be giving you advice nor should your life coach by the way but i'm a bit more vocal on it with, with coaching it's more people who want to just get up get it done a bit more um, goal orientated come to me for coaching okay is there any sort of key area that you are really keen to work with at the moment um, I do a lot of CBT looking at anxiety looking at why we have mental blocks looking at self-esteem and building back up self-esteem and with a lack of self-esteem that brings us into unhealthy relationships and us into cycles that's kind of what I work with looking at the thoughts that are affecting the behaviour and looking where there's patterns within that person's childhood or other kind of areas. So that's where I work. And okay. obviously knowing that there's things that bring up like trauma that I work with. Uh, for count for coaching, again, it depends what someone comes with. Uh, I do 360 equivalent coaching, which is someone looking at their whole life. So when they're at a place where in a transition, it might be they've changed jobs, it might be they want to change job, a relationship's ended. They want to start a new business. We do a whole, as I just said um, in the beginning, equilibrium, looking at the different parts of their life where there's maybe no balance. Or we need to look at what's not helpful, what's not fruitful. And we work on an agreement of this area we're going to work on. So that's kind of how I do it. With therapy, what you said about mum things, that comes up a lot with clients. That mother-daughter dynamic, narcissistic parenting is something I've been working on with I say for the last four years, and that's become up a lot in therapy, a lot with my clients. Mm. But um, outside of that, then yeah, it's more um, just more general. 
Okay. I'm not surprised to hear you say that, actually, because I think it's um, <coughs> narcissism is a really big topic at the moment, isn't it? And I think yeah. with everything that's going on in social media, and I think everyone is just really keen to really understand what narcissism is now and just noticing yeah. all the narcissists in their own lives. So when you talk about um, equilibrium, and I'm hearing Reiki, I'm hearing nutrition, I'm hearing going to therapy, getting coached. If I'm at the beginning of this wellness journey, that I know that can be quite overwhelming. Um, yeah. Someone may be following you or looking at your page. I have to say, you look amazing as well in all your pictures. <laughs> they might be like, oh my God, I can never be, I can't you know, balance all these things. What can I do today just, just to kind of take that first step forward what sort of first three steps you would say to someone who's at the beginning of their journey for well-being <laughs> I think it's very individual yeah I think first understanding what you mean by well-being what is it you want so understanding what it is are you saying you want it to be more food healthy are you say you want to be more confident being a bit clearer on it, what your journey is what is it you're wanting to get out of this journey the things that I strongly advocate, again, is self-care. It's such a buzzword. I, I get a bit irritated when people mention, like, well-being and self-care because it's just a buzzword. They don't bring any depth or content to it. So when I say self-care, I look at my mental, emotional, physical, spiritual, and financial well-being. I look at areas within that. How am I taking care of that? So, for example, I pay my bills on time because I can't afford to, to have debt collectors because that would affect me how I feel about myself, it affect my so my, my my surroundings, things like that. So taking care of myself. You hear I said I'm sick. So this last two weeks I haven't been seeing clients. I've seen one via Skype. I took time to take care of myself and, and rest. So it's just things like that. I'm very much strong on my self-care. I make sure once a week I um, run workshops on self-care jars. So once a week I use my self-care jar, regardless of what's going on in the house, regardless of what my partner's needs and my children's needs are once a week. I use my self-care jar to pick out a self-care activity to do for myself. And I'm unapologetic about it. Whether it's having a bath, this is mummy's time. I lock the bathroom door because no one's coming in. If you need to go to work before I get in the bath because no one's coming in. I need my time to rest. I very much believe in restorative sleep. A lot of people will tell you to get rest, you know, take care of yourself and sleep but I don't understand the restorative purpose of sleep. So I would take like my teas. I will put a deep conditioner in my hair. So my hair has been conditioned at night. I make sure the music around me, the temperature in the room, I burn certain oils at nighttime. So when I'm not just sleeping, I'm restoring myself whilst I sleep. So restorative sleep, self-care, and all this blocking on social media and unfollowing people, my thing is do it in real life. We've got so much people around us that we know are not healthy for us. Whether it's old friendships, whether it's family. In real life, I've learned to do no contact or learn to have boundaries in how you re relate and contact them. So there's some people who, before I got to no contact with them, I would set a timer when my phone rings for them. That if I'm going to talk, talk to you, it's no more than 15 minutes. And that's it. Or I'd have trigger words. If they start saying things, that they start to go into a very negative kind of spell and start going off. All right, honey, I'm going to go now. I will talk to you later. So it's just things like that. Yeah, mm -hmm. so self-care, restorative sleep, mm -hmm. and having been very aware of what you allow into your mental and physical space. 
I love those. Those are so practical and I think they're so applicable <laughs> to a range of people. And that's what I love about it. Having a self-care care jar I need one of those myself to be fair my daughter has one in her room um, and I'm always banging on uh, at her about making sure she fills it up but I'm like I don't even have one in my room I need to get one um, and you the We're good at telling people care. <laughs> I know exactly <laughs> I need to do it myself but restorative sleep I really love that I mean just as you described it I actually was thinking about having a good night's rest today because it's, it's so needed I mean the sleeping and there's really sleeping isn't there I mean exactly. just feeling like you've woken up and you're back to where you need to be and blocking exactly. people in real life oh yeah yeah <laughs> that is <it's> needed <laughs> <laughs> yes definitely I think that's something we can all do because just as you said you know we do it on social media we talk about blocking people but it's like in real life you know you've got to have those boundaries so I think that's, those are such really, really good tips. I love those. So I think we've covered a lot. So just to end, I wanted to ask, so three things which connect me more with myself, my humanity, and which ground me are music, food, and nature. So I wanted to ask you, what is one current song that you listen to to pick you up when you're feeling not so great? <laughs> Oh God, what songs I like to listen to? There's so much. I'm not so, do you know what? It's I think his name is either Terry or Anthony Garman. Mm-hmm. And I can't sing. <laughs> <laughs> but it goes, um, here I am at it's a gospel song. Here I am at the altar, tears rolling down my face. I really don't mind. Anyway you bless me, Lord is fine, as long as you bless me. Mm-hmm. And it's just it just makes me stream. Whether I'm happy or sad. It just yeah. makes me stream tears. Wow. I think it's Anthony Garman. Okay, yeah, I'm going to look that one song. up. <laughs> my three knows the song. <laughs> I'm going to look that one up. It sounds powerful. I love it. Love it. Love <laughs> okay, and then one food that you cannot live without right now. Planting. Planting. <laughs> that one came out straight away. You yeah, knew it. actually a cookbook called a planting cookbook. <laughs> And there's like over, I think like 30, 40 recipes from cakes to bread. I, oh my God, it's amazing. Oh, I think I need that in my life. That is me and my daughter. <laughs> we love some planting. Yes, definitely. Okay. And my third thing was nature. So I say nature, but it could be an environment. So a happy place, any place that kind of just makes you feel at peace right now. Uh, I say home, but outside mm-hmm. of home, I would say it's weird. Brighton Beach. Really? I I just lay on the beach on the horrible tough stones where I put something (laughs) down. I usually put a hat over my face and just listen to the the water and hold stones. And it's just, if people can't find me that know me well, before I've taken a little trip up to Brighton, it's just, it's something about that, the water, I don't know what it is, but it's just so peaceful. That sounds lovely. Oh, well, thank you. I think it's been a great interview and it's been good getting to know more about you and about your work. So thank you so much for coming on to Vivify Conversations today. And I look forward to connecting with you more after this interview as well. So definitely thanks. Thank you so much. You're doing great. I love the idea of this. It's fantastic. Thank you very much. No worries. Take care. Bye.